Hello, my friend. It's Dave here. Before the episode, I have a quick favor to ask you. Would you mind please leaving a rating for us on our show? The new story is, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Doing so only takes a couple of seconds. You can go to our show page uh, on Spotify. You'll see a rating underneath the name of the show. On Apple Podcasts, you scroll down to the bottom of our show page. You can see an opportunity to leave a rating and a review. This goes a long way to help our rankings uh, so that people can more easily find the show and also helps future listeners know that people are actually listening. Um, And it would go a long way. So thank you in advance for your consideration as we try to put this podcast on the map for more people the world over. Thanks again. And welcome to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. I am the founder of The New Story Company and the host of this podcast. On today's episode, it's another Best of the Pod featuring two recent interviews as we celebrate Pride Month. We heard from two phenomenal guests earlier this month, both of whom shared uh, an experience of coming from a point of view, coming from a lived-in experience as members of the very diverse, very wide LGBTQIA community. We'll be hearing from author Wade Rouse, who tells us about his memoir, Magic Season, about how the game of baseball, which was something that he loathed growing up, that he was forced to play by his uh, somewhat abusive and controlling father, Uh, actually created a language for them to bond and to find healing before his father's death. And we'll also hear from former professional performer, international community builder, and public speaking coach Eduardo Placer, who tells us about his own story and journey of finding himself, how he learned to quit performing so that he could become his whole and true self, and how he helps others uh, doula their own stories and self-expression in the world. If you like this best of episode, please go back and listen to the full interviews with Wade and with Eduardo. I think you'll really like what you hear. Happy Pride to you and yours. Let's kick off the first interview with Wade. So I grew up in southwest Missouri, literally within spitting distance of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, kind of in what we call the Four Corners region right down there. And I was born um, in 1965, so really grew up in the 1970s in rural America. You know, I always say everybody's seen the TV show Ozark. They candy-coated that, what what I grew up with. You know, it was much rougher and much tougher and much more isolated, especially for a gay kid in the 1970s. You know, there were no role role models. There were no words to say what I was feeling um, or how I was. And so it was really, really difficult. You know, Ozark's kids, you know, especially boys are, you know, I don't mean to stereotype them all, but they're rough and tumble. You know, they hunt and they fish and they play sports and they go mudding in their trucks and wear, you know, dingo boots and wranglers and all the things that I didn't do. You know, I like to read and bake with my grandmothers in their kitchen and wear little ascots that they made me and (laughs) write and journal. And so that's just, you know, that's putting a a target right on the middle of my head. So it was not easy to grow up there in the 1970s because there was no way to express what I was feeling or to connect with anyone in some way about what I was going through. So it was 
um, deeply isolating. The wonderful thing was that I, I had a crazy mother that I write a lot about who was way ahead of her time, you know, studied world religion at a time in an area of full on Southern Baptists, you know, where you couldn't, couldn't drink or dance. Um, and my mother taught me that it was, she was a nurse and a hospice nurse. She taught me it was okay to be different and to believe in my uniqueness. And that really, along with my grandmother's love, kind of set me apart and helped helped keep me going. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And you, and you do mention in the early chapters of Magic Season, Wade, you describe how like feeling different, feeling like an outsider in your community. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, how a lot of kids in the Ozarks grow up. You said that in your book that uh, learning how to hunt made you physically sick. Um, and while you were forced into playing sports because, quote unquote, that's what, you know, young men did um, growing up in those days, um, you would prefer to be alone. You'd prefer to learn how to cook with your mother, or your grandmother, like you said, or playing outside in the woods, exploring. I think you mentioned talking, talk, preferring to talk to rabbits rather than hunt them and, and try to shoot them. Um, and so in this in this context, in this environment, we're introduced to um, <clears throat> the figure of your father, who uh, is many things. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about him in the context of this book and how we meet him. But of all the things that he is, you you return to describing him as, as the chemical engineer that he was. And you describe yourself as an equation that he could never seem to figure out. I'm wondering how early in your life you made that connection or felt like your dad was trying to like fix you or solve you. Was there a point that you realized it or was it like from, from so young that you couldn't even distinguish like when it began, if you will? Yeah. You know, I think it was, you just you stick out like a sore thumb, you know, in the Ozarks in the 70s, if you're not following, you know, the rest of the sheep, it was, it was very difficult. And I never did that. I didn't do that from the beginning. I think my father obviously knew and I knew very early, but there was no way to put that into context, if that makes sense. You know, we just there was no language for any of that. You know, I write in the in magic season about a real seminal moment where my dad tried to teach me to play baseball and I, you know, just didn't come naturally. You know, the glove didn't work on my hand and the ball would just sail. You know, there are pictures of me, Polaroids, and the ball's just sailing over my head time and time again. And I'm like, when are you folks going to stop this? And he said to me, you'll never learn how to play baseball and you'll never be a real man. And that's what it was in the Ozarks, this, this, this this concept and idea of what a real man was and what he did. And I confounded my father because I fit into none of those things. You know, I didn't, even in school studying things, I wanted to write, I wanted to major in communications or journalism, all the things that my, as my dad once said, you know, you're never going to make a damn cent communicating. What does that, what does that mean? He just couldn't quantify um, me or my life. And it was, it was hard, you know, because all any kid really wants is his father's or parents' acceptance and unconditional love. That's all you want growing up. And when you know it's when you know it's not there, when you can feel it in your soul, um, no matter how early it's it lingers and it sticks with you, it makes you feel less than um, and unwanting and undeserving of love and. You know, that set a pattern in my life that was hard and very destructive for a long, long time. 
Yeah. And I'm wondering about the role of writing both. Again, we, we talked fiction and nonfiction, but specifically as a nonfiction writer, as a, as a memoir writer, um, you know, the genre of, of memoir is so fascinating to me because I, I love nonfiction work and I consider myself a nonfiction writer. I've never written memoir, but memoir specifically is really interesting because I feel like it's a vessel for taking a specific lens on a trajectory mm. of the past, like through your memories and almost like relitigating the experience, not for the sake of purely reliving it, but meaning making along the way. That's why I think it's such an interesting and fascinating genre of storytelling. And, and I'm curious about if writing throughout your, your younger years especially Wade, um, provided you this outlet of, of self-knowledge of personal learning and growth, full disclosure. This is like, this kind of like my religion is like, is like personal writing to understand the self. So I don't want to force you into that box if, if, um, that wasn't the case for you, but I am curious about, because it seems like you had such a rich inner world as a young person. Um, if, writing specifically or just other other practices or experiences of your inner world, like you mentioned, um, learning how to bake and cook, um, gave you an outlet through which you could start to know what felt like your true self, maybe if you didn't even have the language for that, despite getting these really toxic reinforcing ideas yeah. and stories placed upon you that like you weren't a quote unquote real man or you never would be or you were, you were different and felt like an outsider. How did you access your inner world um, and, and did writing have a role with that? Or is it something that just kind of developed later in life? God, that's a great question. And stop me because I could go in a million different directions and talk forever on that point because um, it's true. You know, I always describe memoir writing as you're going on a long hike. Like I winter in Palm Springs and hike a lot and you're going on a long hike and you put on a backpack, but what can you pack in that backpack that's essential to get you to the top of the peak? You know, there's only certain elements that you can put in that that are essential for the trip. And that's the same for hiking. And it is the same, exactly the same for um, a writer. You know, you can only put in exactly what you need. So that's always how I kind of look at, at, at memoir writing. But growing up, you know, I think I started when at kind of the, at the feet of my mother and my grandmothers, you know, it was part and parcel growing up with them um, in their sewing rooms and in their kitchens where I saw that they were creating, you know, I watched my grandmothers um, bake. Uh, they had sewing rooms with these big singing singer sewing machines and you know, when they would sew, for instance, they would take disparate scraps and, and, and weave them into something beautiful, which is what I still do today. But I saw through them at an early age that they were actually telling stories of their lives and their families through, through these acts. You know, it could be pulling an old recipe card um, from a recipe box and baking a, a treasured family dessert, or it could be quilting, whatever it was. They were pulling something together that kind of told a story of, of family that could and might last forever. And that's what writing was for me. You know, I, I remember a big moment in, in middle school where I tried out for a talent contest and I sang Delta Don, if you remember that, the Tanya Tucker version, and held a faded rose and I got heckled off stage 
And my mom and grandma were waiting backstage and they gave me a copy of Irma Bombeck's book at Wit's End. And they gave me a, a writing journal and said, perhaps this is how I would make sense in my life. And that's how I started writing was I would journal and write every single day just about life or what was happening or, uh, you know, an embarrassment or something beautiful that I saw in the woods, it, whatever it was. And that started to make me believe, if this makes sense in myself, because, you know, we all are gifted this incredible voice, you know, as artists and writers, especially. And it's all we've got. This is all we've got from here to here um, is all we have. And yet we spend our, especially when we don't fit in, we spend our lives trying to lose that because we just want to be like everyone else. We just want to be accepted and fit in. So we spend our childhoods and our lives trying to bury that voice because we don't want to be different. It's weird to be different. And yet that was my saving grace um, was knowing that getting this down, there was something real and authentic about what I was feeling. And it moved me at an early age um, and made me laugh or it made me cry. And that kind of always kept me centered. It's wonderful that your your mother, your grandmother, uh, and, and I'm not sure if it's both your grandmothers who you had relationships with. Was it just was it just the the one way, or was it? Did you have both grandmothers in your life? Actually, both. My I was very close to my mother's mom because she just lived over a you know a hill from me. But I was very close to my dad's um, mother as well. She was a seamstress too, and um, they had a cabin that I spent. I write a lot about that I. I grew up spending childhood summers and so very close to both. Yeah. Well, it's just wonderful that you, you also had the support from others in your life who, who were able to encourage you and give you these outlets of, of self-knowledge. Um, but taking it back to, to the memoir at hand of magic season, and I'm sure we'll, we'll dip back into talking about your mother and grandmothers as well. I'm wondering if we could, uh, establish for the listeners who haven't read your book yet, a little bit about your father by perhaps telling us a story. The, the one I'm thinking of specifically that stands out from reading your book is, um, when you were a young kid and you found yourself uh, caught in a strong current in the river, uh, you called out for your father who was on the shore and, and what his reactions were. Maybe this this might be just an, an example that kind of establishes for our listener what, what the relationship was like, at least when it started when you were young. Yeah, and his, I think his, you know, his belief of what a real man was. You know, my mom had, you know, for that wasn't really a country club we joined in the Ozarks, but it was, you know, it had a pool and a place where you could get lunch in a nine-hole golf course. And, uh, I was in swim lessons and my father came and literally pulled me out of the pool, um, you know, saying the boy don't need fancy and took me down to our cabin and with a six pack of beer and literally threw me into the swift moving creek. It was called Sugar Creek, um, which ran high and, you know, and after heavy rains and didn't make a move to to save me, to teach me anything, to help me at all. He just pretty much laughed as I was swept downstream. And, um, you know, I, I fought like hell to, to try and swim back to shore and save myself. And when it was over, my dad, you know, just essentially said, stop all your caterwaul and son, you know, here's, here's a drink of my beer. You did it. And, uh, I kind of juxtapose that with, you know, being an adult and being in northern Michigan in a resort town where the 
where the salmon run every every fall up upstream. And comparing myself to to that, you know, I never really like them. I never really learned how to swim. I just learned how to survive. You know, I just was paddling as hard as I could my entire life against every force of nature where I grew up, you know, so environmental to try and live. Um, I just never really learned how, how, how to swim well in life. And I think that's like so many of us, you know, we are, so I love to write both genres. You know, I always like to write what I call ghosts on our shoulders. You know, all of those things that in the past that make us who we are today, it's, it's, the past that's done it. It's all the things that have happened to us and how we have and haven't coped with that, that have made us who we are and why we are the way we are. Um, and in writing nonfiction, that's how I tried to look at my father too. You know, it's a memoir where when I write nonfiction, I try not to blame. I try to understand because of those ghosts. And why did my dad become the man he was. Um, what was it in his past? Um, you know, same for me. Did I become the man I was because of my dad or in spite of him, or was it both? Um, so that's, you know, my dad was an, the most emotional, non-emotional man you've ever known. I mean, if you know a true country man, a true Ozarks man, where words do not come easily, um, where you can't express anything, where any emotion you deal with by clicking off a Cardinals game that's not going the right way, or you drink another beer to kind of bury all that you're feeling, that was that was my dad, and that's a that it's a bad ending. You know, it's going it's going to come out and explode um, in the worst possible ways at moments. Yeah, and so in uh, despite the differences in your personalities and, and how your father seems to have not only misunderstood you from a young age, but also kind of thrust his ideas of like what manhood is and how someone should be uh, in the environment in which you were growing up. You found, and as you detail in Magic Season, um, that despite your strained relationship you know, for, for many years that there was still this uh, mutual respect and appreciation of baseball, which gave you something to bond through. Uh, but it also seems like baseball gave you a shared sense of language for even loosely yeah. or indirectly uh, understanding one another. Um, when did it become clear to you that baseball was something that you and your father both held as meaningful, despite the issues that you experienced in your relationship throughout your life? You know, at a very early age, you know, I did, when my dad couldn't teach me how to play baseball. Um, I would walk into the house and kind of stand in the shadows and watch him watching or listening to a to a St. Louis Cardinals game. And when he would do that, he'd always pat the end of the couch for the dog to join him. And I kind of just watched him watching just because I wanted his approval or his attention. I wanted him to invite me in in some way. And over over the course of just doing that, I truly became interested in the game of baseball. You know, it, it's a thinking man's game. It hasn't changed that much over the co course of time. Um, and my dad, early on, as I write in the book, said to me, you know, it's the games like life. It's the tiny decisions inning to inning that make the final score in the end. And that was how I always looked at our relationship. Um, 
and it really did. It be, you know, I call it our love language. You know, we didn't talk for a long time much about our lives, but we could talk about baseball. We could talk about famous Cardinals players like Keith Hernandez and Lou Brock and, uh, you know, Bob Forsh and Al Rabowski. And there is something, as I've learned, getting so many emails already, especially from straight men (laughs) and readers across the country, is that sports are an incredible uniter. You know, men often cannot and do not express emotion. But if they're watching a game together or attending a game or they're playing golf, whatever it may be, there's a shared experience there, despite not really talking about anything deep within. They're still together and something is happening between them. And that's what happened to my dad. And I think over the course of time, finally, the baseball transferred to life and we were able to start talking and sharing stories. And that's where I began to understand how he became Ted Rouse and um, why it was so hard for him. And, you know, baseball saved our men in many ways, saved our relationship. You know, I write about um, when I came out to my father, he did not talk to me for two years. He wrote me a horrific letter saying, you know, I was going to burn in hell and I would lose my job and all my friends. And, you know, I'd been coerced (laughs) in a back alley by, by an older man, you know, even though my husband's younger than I am. Um, And he just, he did, it it was all environmental. He had no idea what he was talking about. And at that time I had to walk away because the hurt was so much. Um, And he, you know, he wounded me so deeply. But when Mark McGuire for the Cardinals hit a 70th home run and broke the baseball record, my dad called me on the phone and he said, you know, his apology was he didn't do it alone. It takes a team. And to me, that was my father's first apology and first step back um, to loving me and understanding who I was and also getting to know my husband, Gary, um, and loving him at the end deeply. Um, but it took it took baseball as a way to, to make that happen. And that took a long time, but I'm thankful it did. I wanted to, uh, on, a, on a somewhat serious note, I know that you're uh, afflicted by a little known condition called shotunitis that causes you to spontaneously break out into song from time to time. Um, before we get into yes. the, the real meat and potatoes of our conversation, I just want to see how is your condition these days? Like how, are, how are you faring with your shotunitis? Um, you know, I, you know, growing up as a child in Miami, Florida, uh, tinnitus was very difficult to live with, uh, cause I don't think it was something that was celebrated or understood by the people around me, specifically my family. I think they wish I had more like Beatleitis or, you know, rock and rollitis, not show tunes. Cause that's what came out of my mouth. Uh, and I think it was lost to my Cuban immigrant parents, <clears throat> But now I just surrender. So I, uh, I lean into the flare up. So when the flare up happens, you know, then I just let it out. I let it rip. And uh, I just let people know in advance that it's coming, it's happening. And then I lean into it and then we move on. <laughs> so, the crazy thing is I know a lot of like first lines to show tunes uh, and that's it. I, there's a, there, you know, I, I'm lost past <laughs> kind of like the first line, the first cue in, and then, then the rest of it is kind of a bit of a blur. 
but yeah. you know, in the musical theater, there's always like the cue line. So what happens is inevitably I'm having a conversation with someone and they say something and it feels like the great lead into a song, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like right. a great little volley. So yeah. that, that's what I can't contain. I can't contain. And that's the cue. And now cue song, uh, that right. my my brain does not have yeah. that so it's it's so <laughs> funny to me how like some people have like the the musical mindset where and of course we're we're being playful about like show tonight as being an affliction although you do mention um without much of a, a hint of humor right eduardo about um ha- like you know your your, yeah. your selfhood your love of of music and show tunes coming out in a culture that maybe didn't instinctively understand it or even support it or a culture around you that was intimidated or uncomfortable by it, which are very serious topics and stuff that we'll, we'll get into perhaps in the course of our conversation today about your upbringing and um, yeah. your experience in music and acting as well as talking about story. But um, it's, it's always remarkable to me how the, the, the instincts that we, that we carry kind of become uh we experience them almost as if chapters throughout the book of our life, right? Where there's these different instances yeah. of, and, and then they become a, a part of, you know, everyday conversations that you have with people when, when the show tune is summoned from deep within you. You know, I, I have an identical twin brother who's straight. And when we used to play with our GI Joes, my brother played war and I played war, the musical, my little GI Joe <laughs> sang and they danced and they had monologues. And what's interesting is that I I, I do have an ability to laugh at stuff that is painful. Mm. Right. And I think that there is pain that's been painful for me. I'm not laughing at other people's pain, but I'm laughing at my own, which is maybe why there's a little bit of permission, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and it's interesting because we're, you know, I don't know if we can talk about time, but we are in June. <laughs> Do you know? Yes. June is busting out all over, all over the heather and the mill. A little show tune from Carousel. And <laughs> the the thing that's interesting, so June is Pride Month in yes. the United States. And, you know, I've done a lot of reflection around pride and why is pride important. And I think that the reason why pride is important is because it's sourced from deep shame. Mm. It is the antidote and it is the medicine to having grown up in a belief that there was something fundamentally wrong and shameful about my very experience, right? So what's Mm. interesting about show tunitis and what's interesting about the bursting out into the show tune and gifting myself and granting myself permission to lean into that is that it is an explosion of joy, Mm. right? And that joy is an antidote to the shame. And what's interesting is that I find that when I lean into it and share of that, uh, in my own storytelling, in my own uh, speaking, I think that it is, it, it, it because I'm also singing and it's also music, it kind of cuts through the noise of the brain and it goes straight to the heart. And I think it creates an opening that immediately creates a bond and a connection with an audience. Uh, And I tell the show tonight's joke everywhere in the world. Like the show tonight's is not spared an audience. Like everybody gets it. And I Mm -hmm. think 
for someone in an audience to be witness to that, it is completely disarming. It is Mm. joyful. And I'm laughing with myself and with all of us together, you know, as I reveal a truth about myself, which is also me creating a space of safety with my audience so that they know, yes, I do have this show to an affliction and I'm a raging homosexual. So that's also a piece (laughs) of the puzzle. Not that, and you can have show tonitis and be, Heterosexual, you can be show tonitis and be non-binary and non-conforming. You can have show tonitis and be a cisgender heterosexual person. Like it is, not, it is inclusive of all expression. Right. Uh, but uh, that is, uh, it, it just creates that space of seeing and and liberation and and play. I I think I've never really considered joy to be the antidote. Or the, the, the quote unquote like light, the promise side to the shadow of that is shame, right? If we talk about mm-hmm. two sides of the same coin um, and you know, what, what came to mind for me, I Correct. was thinking of Matt Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that framework mm-hmm. in which uh, – and also, and also um, you know, uh, the, the uh, Hindu South Asian uh, chakra system which would kind of equate um, or put on the same level – shame as a as an inner an internal source an internal wounding that represents not having done wrong like guilt but being wrong like your existence is somehow flawed Correct. or wrong and the from what i what i recall from psychology and even from this the spiritual text that i've read about the chakral system it's like selfhood self-knowledge self-confidence and sometimes even self-love but it's like self-dash that are that are typically associated with like here's the healing for shame it's like to know yourself really well and and i think we can attach joy to that but i never really personally considered like leading with joy as the correction to like you know undeserving shame about who you are as a person and Mm. it feels more powerful than to me as i'm hearing you express it it feels more powerful in like more corrective and more progressive like more for it it moves more forward or together Mm. than just you know saying like know yourself and uh know yourself if, (laughs) if you've been dealt a shame hand if that makes sense and you know what's interesting is um i have found uh, that, and the, the way I, you know, I, I, you know, and, and thank you for the permission, you know, and the space to be speaking, you know, as we are in pride month, you know, and me speaking about my own relationship with shame and my own internalized homophobia in relationship to my homosexuality, um, and my gayness, uh, that I feel like I was so hyper-corrected in every natural expression, the quality of my voice, the pitch of my voice, the gestures that I used, the things that I liked, the things that excited me. Like I felt like I had to perform who I think other people wanted me to be. And I think that that's, I'm not, I, I, think, I don't think that that's the only experience that, that is only true for queer people. I believe that most of us live in some trap of I was taught or I was led to believe that by performing someone other than who I am, 
I could be successful or I could achieve or I could be better uh, or I wouldn't, I didn't have to tell the truth. Like I, nobody really wanted to know the truth. Everybody wanted me to sound like or look like or be someone other than who I am. I feel that that's where we get this, this fear and shame around public speaking, which is something that I'm in the, in the work of. Right. Uh, and that the, the opportunity, because it is work because the, I, I, the fear and the shame is always present. It's not like it's gone. You know, there is a, there's a traumatized second grader inside of me that is, that is trying to not relive that trauma ever again. That 45 year old Eduardo has to be like, you know what? You're fine. You're okay. Uh, I'm going to bring my light anyway. And what's so interesting is that, again, I have been in places in the world where, where I have had to question, like, is my light too bright here? Do I lean into the full expression of who I am or do I have to edit or code switch and stuff like that? And, and there are places in the world where it is dangerous to be a gay man. You know, that is very clear. It is not. And that, that happens in the United States. And that also happens in other places in the world. We're not immune to that in the United States, although sometimes we think that we are. Uh, and I, I feel very blessed and very lucky that, that in the leaning into it, uh, it always pays off. And I think what people connect to is that universal desire for freedom, right? That universal desire of liberation, that universal desire of being expressed that, that I think many people suffer with the, can I, do I, should I, will I, that, that I think that my, and Shotunitis is a sliver of it, uh, gives people permission to harness and share their joy. And I think that that is, uh, that, that, you know, to, and to bring it back to story and storytelling, I think that that's ultimately we want, not that everything we have to tell is joyful, but there is something powerful about speaking the truth. And I think that that's, that's the medicine that I'm after. And that's the medicine that I've just because I've been in the lifelong search for the expression of my own, that I now get to be a conduit for other people, harnessing that for themselves so that they understand the truth that is of greatest service for them to share right now. It's really remarkable to hear you describe the experience of feeling obligated from a young age, based on the feedback you were receiving from people around you that you had, you were kind of instinctively almost like in an adaptive way, right? Like a survival mechanism and, and just being a social creature, kind of like trying to find your way in the world through the people around you as, as we all do in our own ways. But you mentioned the self-editing, the code switching, the performative nature of trying to fit in or maybe minimize your, your nature, not only your, your sexuality, uh, as you mentioned as a gay man, but like your, your, your nature as like being outspoken and being, wanting to be joyful and, and playful and, um, First, just how how much it hurts me, you know, as an as an empath, um, to imagine that that young version of you, that second grade 
second grader in you that, that persists to this day, but also imagining that second grader um, navigating that world and figuring out how to exist in a way that is both ensures your survival and your safety, which everybody deserves fundamentally at the just at the at the essence of their existing, the very least is that fundamental right to feel safe at all times. And then hmm. not only the, the physical safety that one deserves, especially if in, as we are in Pride Month talking about um, the LGBTQIA plus experience, but also there's that secondary emotional, mental, psycho-spiritual aspect of survival, which is not only to, to be physically safe and, and allowed to live, but then to express the full truth of who somebody mm. knows themselves to be in the world. And that, that's, right. in, in talking about public speaking, which you, which you do as a coach, I'm wondering how much, Eduardo, as we start to maybe talk a little bit about the, 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 the art and the nature of storytelling and, and putting stories forth in the world and, and living your story out loud, when you're working with your clients, I'm wondering about how much – not to maybe like quantify or try to quantify it, um, but I'm wondering about how much of what brings somebody into the room with you to learn how to speak more fearlessly is driven by mm. that younger version of themselves, and maybe maybe the wound, maybe the wound or the shame um, that they are they are yeah. driven to learn to master <laughs> the pain. Um. And express it in the world versus how I think I imagine a, a lot of our listeners may say like, well, public speaking is what you do when you're when you're a motivational speaker, when you just wrote a book and you want to sell the book. You know, the more like commercial yeah. aspects of like speaking and being on TEDx right. that we equate with like career success. I'm curious about how you've seen people come into the room and is I, it always quite a personal? slight shade. I love the slight shade of the <laughs> of the the career success because you know it's interesting. <clears throat> There's several things that I want to say about that. The first, I believe that there is speaking from ego, so it is what I call speaker focused speaking, which I'm mm. not really interested in. And then there's audience focused speaking, which is the speaker is a channel for some type of message or truth to be shared in the moment that is of service to the people who are listening. That to me feels uh, in greater alignment because I, I have very little patience or tolerance uh, for people just taking up space to take up space. You know, because it's all about them. It is feeding their ego. It's feeling their their need to be seen, their need to be validated. Uh, that is less interesting to me. <clears throat> uh, there's an Aboriginal saying which we center in our work, which is the story is hunting the storyteller. Ooh, I think you're gonna love. I think you love that one, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think. Uh, sometimes when I share that there's like an alchemical shift and people are like, oh, oh oops, oops. And what I think is really interesting about that is that I don't believe that there's anything new. 
right? As far as story is concerned, I feel like the themes of human experience, uh, jealousy, shame, love, heartbreak, victory, defeat, uh, these these are the lessons that we continue to learn as human beings. I think our stories are repeating lessons. They are parables that are repeating things for us to learn, to make sense of the time that we have from when we are born till we die. The, the story is a tool. And however the specificity of your DNA, your fingerprint, your lived experience is another prism to highlight a truth that bears being repeated. So I think that that's that's the joy. That's the interesting piece of it. that, That yes, only you will live your life. Only you will live your experience and only you will experience these themes and through the intricacy and specificity of like your reactions and the decisions that you've made or things that have happened to you and how you reacted to those events that have happened, that story now sounds, looks, feels different. And yet the lesson is the same. It is a lesson that we continue to learn I don't think that we as human beings are good at learning lessons, which is why we need new and more stories, right? Uh, I think that that's just part of the human experience. And uh, and what's interesting is that I think that people come thinking oftentimes that there's a story that they want to tell. And then inevitably, the story that needs to be revealed emerges. And sometimes it's not the story that you think. And that's why in in part of our work, in part of our work at Fearless Communicators, the term that we use is being story doulas. And, uh, And I think what we do is we craft and create a container that allows the story that wants to be revealed to emerge. And sometimes that means that other stories have to kind of clear. So sometimes in our work where we have our clearing stories, someone gets a story out and they're like, wait, I've been holding on to that story for 10, 15, 20 years. And now that I've actually said it, now that I've actually crafted it, now that I've actually made sense of it, now I'm actually present to the new thing that wants to emerge because we're still sometimes stuck or holding on to stories of the past so much so that we can actually be present to the stories that are actually emerging in the moment. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I think that what is, uh, that the impetus ultimately what I'm always interested in is the truth and and I think that to go back to the story that we were telling, the reason why I'm so interested in the truth is because from probably the age of five or six or seven, who I was was a liar. Right? So from the moment that I woke up to the moment that I went to sleep, I had to perform or convince everyone around me that I wasn't who I was, that the desires that I had, the things that I liked, the people that I had crushes on, like none of that, the truth was something that the people nearest to me 
couldn't be with. So I had to lie. And I think part of my journey coming out at 18, being an actor where you're paid to lie, you're paid to convince other people that you are a character and all that other stuff. Finally, one of the things that exhausted me about being an actor was like, I was sick and tired of performing somebody else. I was like, I'm done with that. I've spent my entire life donning and putting on a drag or a costume or a character of who I thought everyone else needed me to be. And pardon the expression, I'm fucking over it. And I'm ready to embody and be the truth as I know it in this moment for myself in my lived experience and, and speak about, tell my own story, share my own experience and be a monologuist that I am the author of, right? It is, I'm not, no one else is writing it for me. I am speaking it. And, uh, and I think that that impetus, that hunger is something that people find a home in, in fearless communicators, which is there is something that I want to say. I'm either terrified of it or I don't quite know how to say it because there's a lot that's going on in my mind. And I think oftentimes fear and shame and doubt is a part of that, although it may not be very frontal lobe for people. I think that there is some type of root there. Uh, and then the, the power in the the liberation of that truth as a tool of service so not just it's not about me it's through me that i think becomes the differentiator and i think that that's what makes it uh an act of generosity as opposed to an act of selfishness Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We'll be back soon with a fresh interview for you. In the meantime, if you're feeling generous and want to help support our show, please rate and review The New Story Is wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show. Until next time, I'm Dave Rosillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now. Bye for now.